This is the FS Tech Podcast. Welcome to the FS Tech Podcast. I'm Will McCurdy, content editor of FS Tech. And today we're going to take a look at the dangers which moving sensitive digital assets can pose for financial services organizations. FSIs continue to spend ever-increasing billions on protecting their data as high-profile threats such as ransomware continues to fill the headlines and highly complex supply chain attacks such as solar winds shock the world. However, taking advantage of how organizations move digital assets remains an evergreen attack vector for cybercriminals. You might associate insider threats with vengeful employees or with sales team members trying to steal valuable leads. But simple employee negligence while moving digital assets presents an open door for cybercriminals to infiltrate the armor of otherwise secure institutions operating in highly strict regulatory environments. Confidential data transferred from one system to another also represents an opportunity for interception. An unauthorized access can also occur when the data is stored at rest for download on a file transfer server. In addition, legislation such as GDPR, PCI DSS, and ISO 222 are muddying the waters and pose the threat of steep fines for businesses who fail to foster an awareness of where their files are being transferred and who really has access. But in today's remote working reality, file transfers represent an integral part of many people's daily workflows. And organizations are also tasked with delivering transfer protocols, which are secure, but not so onerous as to reduce compliance. To delve further into these topics, as well as some possible solutions to this digital dilemma, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Sean Devaney, Vice President of CGI and David Martin, Partnership Manager at Progress Software. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Will. Glad to be here. So let's jump into the questions. David, why do you feel that some well-funded organizations still have a blind spot when it comes to external transfer of digital assets? So I, I don't think it'd be particularly contentious of me to say that the larger the company gets, the higher the risk of someone mishandling sensitive information becomes. Why that is, I'd suggest, is, is partly cultural, but also partly about the technology used to reduce that risk. If you consider the cultural dimension first, then I'd point to a recent cyber resilience survey by, by Accenture, I believe, in which it identified the accidental public publication of confidential information by employees as having the second greatest impact in causing a data breach. If the systems, processes, and technology we employ to help users keep confidential data safe are intuitive, accessible, or easy to use, then adoption, I'm afraid, is, is simply going to be low. Now, that's, of course, true of most, if not all, technology. If the solution is convoluted, people will just revert to old habits and old ways of doing things. And that means using fundamentally insecure ways of sharing sensitive data, like public cloud-based services or or even the humble email attachment, for instance. Some of this for sure comes down to robust policy, uh, policy administration, policy adherence. But the obvious way to ensure the risks are eliminated or at worst minimized is to deploy technology that is intuitive, is easy to use, such that it's possible to largely ensure that files leaving an organization 
by whatever means do so securely. Now, the other dimension is the effectiveness of the technology that's deployed itself. And even though there are excellent solutions on the market to support secure file transfer, many IT departments are still relying on outdated approaches such as FTP or legacy scripts. I'm afraid these simply don't cut it when it comes to general efficiency, keeping your company's data safe or showing compliance with industry mandates on how information is secured in exchange. An effective secure file transfer system will guarantee the encryption of data in motion and at rest. It will support strong authentication, provides multiple access control mechanisms, support automated virus scanning and provide full auditability of data from start to finish with recording of event logs. And that's the type of solution that, in my opinion, banks need to be deployed. And, and David, I completely agree with that. And just to pick up on your point about the access to tooling, if you don't make it easy for your employees to access safe and secure enterprise level tooling, then they're going to go out and use other solutions that are much easier to access on, on, on the market. You, you, there's lots of web-based uh, file transfer mechanisms that are, are very easy to use. And, and yes, you can, you can lock uh, access down to a certain extent, but actually the better way to get your organization adopting these safe file transfer mechanisms is actually to make access to those as ubiquitous, as easy and as available as you possibly can. Exactly, sure, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. So moving on, linking in quite closely to the first question, Sean, could you talk about some of the most pertinent risks which transferring digital assets poses for financial services organizations? Yeah, sure. So for me, uh, this is more about the loss of control when transferring data outside the organization. When you're processing data internally, you have the ability to set strict security policies so that you're not only compliant with regulations such as GDPR regarding data privacy, but you can also control the content so that you comply with financial services specific rules like the Payment Services Directive which governs things like the content of uh, payment data, payment messages, and so on. But as soon as it leaves the organization, that control's gone completely. So the focus has to not only be on securing the data that leaves the organization, but also ensuring that only the data that needs to leave does. So it's not, it's not just about making sure that what you are transmitting is, is secure uh, and encrypted. It's about making sure that you're adhering to the uh, regulations and policies that you need to adhere to, to ensure that you're treating your own customers' data, personal information you might have about your business or employees or your customers, uh, they're in line with regulations like GDPR. So financial services firms are really heavily regulated, right? You know, not not least in the area of, of privacy and uh, and consent. And banks have to be particularly careful that the personal data they keep is only used for the purpose for which it was captured. Now, that definition of use can be pretty broad, and banks often have a fairly broad definition of what that fair use is, but it is limited. Uh, and once that data is outside of the organization, obviously, the bank has no control over it, uh, no control over how it's used. Therefore, it's critical that financial institutions control what sort of data leave their secure environments, ensuring that only the data that is required to fill a particular purpose is included in that data that leaves. And just to add to that as well, if, if you look at, you know, I agree with everything Sean, Sean said, by the way, but if you look at some of the 
the, the consequences of what, what Sean's talked about there, you know, they, they come down to pounds, pounds, shillings and pence. You know, Sean referenced some of the, um, some of the fines that are, you know, potentially levied for non-compliance here, which can be as high as 18 million pounds or, or 4% of an annual, of the company's annual turnover, whichever is the greater. But it's not just, it's not just about fines as a consequence of, of non-compliance. It's also about things like reputational risk as well, which can be quite, quite significantly consequential. There was a study by Aon that determined that up to a third of customers in, in the retail, healthcare and financial services industries would stop doing business with an organization that has suffered a breach. You know, in addition to that, you know, companies that have suffered a breach often see an increased cost in acquiring new customers. You know, to take a recent example, which was, was, was Capital One, um, who suffered a data breach involving over 100 million customers in the US and Canada. The company at the time issued a statement that the likely cost to its business for dealing with the incident would be between 100 and 150 million US dollars. The reputational damage also spread to the company's stock price, which slid by 6% at the time. And people also lost their jobs. We shouldn't lose sight of that as well. So it's, whilst it's true that external data transfer do create security challenges, as Sean, as Sean said, you know, the movement of data um, to external end users is also a, a core operational process for just about every business, which is precisely why, whether it's a humble email or an automated and scheduled data transfer at scale, organizations simply must have appropriate protection in place to secure that data and prevent its mishandling, be that malicious or accidental. Uh, and David, I think that point about the breadth of uh, where you've got to look at this sort of data transfer issue, be it, as you say, a, a, humble, a humble email or, uh, or some automated machine-to-machine -machine, um, type interface. It, you know, it, is that, that, that's, I think, where, you know, we talked earlier about the ease of access to solutions, right? You've got to make these tools available for all the points of interaction where somebody in the organization is going to need to transfer data outside the organization. It can't just be a tool that's used in the IT department for machine-to-machine -machine interfaces. It needs to be something that's easy to use in every interaction that, that, that your employees have. Um, because as you say, it's critical to your business that you're going to need to be able to transfer data out of the organization for all sorts of purposes. Exactly. It is, it is a core process. You know, organizations have to share data outside the organization. And, you know, an email attachment is, is a very, very simple way of doing that. It's a very insecure way of doing that. And if you can make methods or, or ways of, of sharing data as easy and as intuitive as, as attaching a simple uh, file to an email, then that's how you will ensure that data breaches are, if not eliminated, at least minimized. Yeah, completely right. Yeah, so some really great points there. So moving on, David, what are some methods you would recommend for converting stakeholders within an organization to the dangers posed by digital asset transfer? So I, I guess, you know, one way of converting users, Will, is, is simply better education about the risks. And, um, you know, that's a fairly obvious statement. Another is to, quite frankly, mandate the use of appropriate secure file transfer technologies with you know, perhaps sanctions attached for non-compliance. But I think in reality, that's not necessarily an approach most organizations, you know, would, would feel comfortable with. And the better way, as we've been saying, is to make the adoption and use of these technologies as simple, easy, and intuitive as it would be not to use them. So no matter how secure the technology is that the company might deploy here, if it's difficult to use and simply seen as a burden by users, then the chances are 
or just simplifying ways around it, as we've already discussed. So it's critical then that whilst you know functional security is important, just as important is the ability with which users can adopt these solutions. You know, secure file transfer needs to be user friendly. Otherwise, you know, employees will just just actively avoid them. But it's not just about ease of use for for employees as well or end users. Um, perhaps less of an issue. But these solutions also need to be workable for IT too. For it's they who, in all probability, set up the largest scale routine or automated file transfers and not individual users. And the risks here are that perhaps a little bit smaller in number, but you know, a single mistake in configuration by IT due to an overly complex or laborious system can be far more devastating for a business. So intuitive, simple to use technologies, as we've been saying, are the key thing here, I would suggest. Yeah, and, and I think I think there's two elements to the, to the response there, isn't there? You know, when you talk about converting stakeholders, there's the stakeholders who have got management responsibility for that organization and therefore for the data it holds right and, and and convincing them you know that's become <laughs> that's become easier since gdpr because as david said earlier the fines for for non-compliance with that for data breaches and that can be as high as four percent of your global annual turnover uh, it's, it's not about whether your uk subsidiary uh, had a data breach uh, and that's where you measure the the fines it's about your, your global turnover. So, so having those kind of um, uh, fines in place that stop people pushing that to the back of mind is, is a really good way to convert those sort of senior management stakeholders. But also you've got to convert me, right? You've got to, you've got to convert the, the end user to that process. And I, and I think, you know, we, we, we certainly in CGR, we have two real approaches to that. They're not technology-based per se, but the first is, is trying to make the uh, use of this uh, type of service almost invisible, ubiquitous and invisible, right? So you don't necessarily know that you're using it. You, you, you know, it goes back to the point of making it easy to use and easy to access. So making sure that the tools that you're, you have in your organization are all compliant with these types of challenges, that they promote security and they promote encryption is absolutely key, that you don't allow people to use Un, uh, unauthorized uh, file sharing sites and things like that, just blocking that, but making it easy to have an alternative that, that exists within the organization. And then the second thing is, is that constant education piece. So we do a lot of work uh, internally with, you know, phishing emails, for instance, right? So the idea of, we, we almost gamify it to a, to a large extent so that, you know, emails will turn up in your inbox that look like they're from, we had a really good one last year, uh, around flu season that, that said um, CGI were offering free flu jabs. Click here uh, to get get your free flu jab. And it was very neatly worded. Um, it looked like a legitimate CGI email. If you check the email address, it comes from the wrong place and, and things like that. But it's just getting people's minds thinking, I should be checking this. I should be thinking about where this data is going to go, where I'm into, who I'm actually interacting with. Is this actually who I think it is? Exactly, exactly. And as you say, Sean, getting the thinking about, you know, how is it that I'm potentially sharing this information? Making the solutions available to people is, is, is part of the solution, but getting them thinking about, you know, how am I sharing this information? Am I using, am I using the right channels is, is the other aspect. Exactly. So moving on. Sean, could you talk about the compliance-related challenges that ISO 222 or any other legislation 
poses for banks who are transferring data from one organization to another? Sure. I mean, hopefully, um, so I say 2082, uh, hopefully that's not so much a file transfer question as it is a compliance one. So I say 2082 messaging allows banks to uh, transfer a much richer set of data around the financial services network of banks and corporates, um, potentially allowing things like uh, remittance and counterparty information to be much more useful um, than it has been in the past. But there are a couple of issues that arise here. So first, let's look at one that arises more because of the complex transaction routing that happens uh, in international payments. Around 50% of all high value payments have some sort of international element to them, i.e. the message will be transferred across international borders, uh, potentially between countries that are at different stages in the journey to migrate to that ISO 2022 message stand. And when that happens, and for a particular leg of that journey, the payment has to travel using older message standards, then some of that richer um, data can be can be lost. And that creates a real problem for organizations because one of the things that you have to be able to do uh, for international message transfers is to trace that message through all the counterparties that it goes through on its journey. And in, in translating from um, new standard to old standard, there is risk that you lose some of that information along the way. So this is not so much a, an issue around data encryption or, or data security, so much as it is around being compliant with the, with the regulations around the data that you have to carry in those kind of payment uh, mechanisms. So, so that brings me on to the, sort of the second point, which is the, looking at the data that's carried in, in, in the message itself. As we just said, or I've just said that ISO 2082 is a much richer message framework than those that have been used in the past. But that's that's what it is. It's, it's a message framework. It can be used to transfer all sorts of financial data from interbank payment messages um, through to security trades and so on. It's the implementation of this framework that presents the challenges for financial institutions and, and, and the corporates that submit data into those institutions and indeed receive uh, from them. Legislation like uh, PSD2, which is the second iteration of the European Payment Services Directive, specifies what sort of data should be carried in those richer payment messages, including things like customer name, account details, who they're sending the money to, you know, and, and obviously the, the normal sort of transactional information that you have there. And, and so obviously that means that there are data privacy issues associated with the movement of that data um, outside of your organization, right? So um, a payments network that would use ISO 2082 for doesn't work unless you've got two parties involved, right? So by default, you are sending information outside of the, uh, your organization. So whilst the standards for the payment networks that this data flows across do ensure absolutely that whilst the data is in transit and at rest within the network, it's appropriately encrypted and managed uh, and you know that's secure and safe, there are still significant challenges for organizations to ensure that the data is correctly managed internally before it's sent and after it's received. And, and some of those challenges are probably most obvious when this data has to be sent from the corporates that actually are wanting to make the payment into, into their bank, where there's a temptation perhaps to use older, less secure transfer mechanisms to get the data into, into your bank. And part of the migration to ISO 2082 is to ensure that all participants in the process, from the corporate all the way through to that your bank and then any correspondent banks that are in that payment chain, 
all take advantage of that new message framework. That's part of the migration strategy towards ISO 2022. But it's a migration over time. And as people move away from old standards, as always, it's in those gaps where the issues are going to be most keenly felt. There's, there's not really a, a huge amount I, I can add to that, Sean, really. I mean, you're, you're, you're clearly you know, the, the subject matter expert in, in this particular space. But if, if there is one thing I can add, and that, that is that you know, ISO 20022 will, will fundamentally require that financial crime teams will need to update their risk management procedures and profiles to support the new data model and XML processing and guaranteeing data integrity and security will therefore be an absolute must. Yeah, I completely agree. Having that end-to-end view of uh, where the data is held, what information you have about particular customers, et cetera, um, and having that throughout that whole value chain is absolutely key to the integrity of that process. Thanks for that. So moving on, I know we've touched on this to some extent in your previous answers, but David, could you talk about um, how you feel that financial services organizations could best approach mitigating digital asset transfer-based risk? Well, hopefully you'll forgive me, Will, if I'm a little, uh, a little binary here and give you a very obvious answer that you might expect from a, a secure file transfer software vendor. But, you know, the best way to mitigate against risks here, here is to deploy technology that is fundamentally secure and that users want to use. As we said, some of the free cloud-based alternatives might appear tempting, but they generally lack some level of inherent security and largely only address part of the challenge. You know, a truly secure managed file transfer service allows businesses to consolidate all file transfer activity into one single system. And that consolidation fundamentally ensures better management control over core business processes. A solution like our own MoveIt um, offering helps businesses achieve that security through centralized access controls, file encryption, and complete and auditable activity tracking. That's the only way it's possible to ensure operational reliability and compliance, internal governance, and adherence to and with regulatory requirements like ISO 20022, PCI, GDPR, or whatever. Uh, like the previous question, I shall defer to, to, to David's knowledge of, uh, of that market, but we've worked with Progress on a number of uh, engagements. CGI are, are well known as an end-to-end systems integrator, uh, and, and using solutions like those for, uh, from Progress really give us a good uh, level of confidence that that, uh, that part of the program, that file transfer, that data transfer element of the program is being well managed and, uh, and well secured. So, Sean, a question for you. With many employees hopefully returning to the office shortly, will hybrid working change the risks which file transfer poses? I, I hope everybody had their fingers crossed as you were, uh, as you were saying that. Uh, yeah, I, I for one, uh, can't wait work. to go back into the office uh, after a year of uh, sitting in, in my office at home. So, actually, I'm not sure that going back into the office itself uh, and that hybrid method of working is necessarily going to bring more risks in terms of data transfer. I think the most significant risk is already there in the form of, you know, collaboration tools uh, like, you know, Zoom and Teams that we've been using for the last you know, year or so far more prevalently uh, than we have done in, in the past. It's really tempting to view those tools 
as part of your own IT infrastructure. And in many cases, they're just not. Not all, but in many cases, they're just not. But we're using them every day for conference calls, uh, project conversations, and, and often with, with clients involved, client interaction. And one of the challenges with these solutions is not being able to guarantee where your data is stored. So if you're using the, uh, the collaboration tools and not just using them for uh, video meetings, then you're able to upload files onto those tools, share them with teams, uh, move data around. And in a lot of cases, those tools are not within the uh, security boundary of your organization. So I think a lot of organizations are having to do a lot of work at the moment to ensure that their internal uh, employees, their groups are managing access to those um, sort of collaboration tools in the right way and not using them as, a, as, as file storage and, uh, and file movement uh, mechanisms. And, and one of the challenges there is you're not actually, even if you are comfortable with putting data on there, you're not always able to guarantee where your data is stored. It, it may be that it's stored in the UK, but it might be elsewhere in, in Europe or in the US, for instance. But the key is it's not within your organization's control anymore. And at that point, you've effectively passed control of the distribution and use of that data to a third party. And just, you know, just, just to ask that, Sean, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I take a simple view here that, you know, you know any employee working outside of, you know, a corporate firewall comes with, you know, some inherent risk attached. And if we accept that, you know, the hybrid working concept is, is here for a while, if, if not forever, then, you know, that inherent risk is here to stay too. And that just amplifies some of the needs we've discussed, um, to be honest. You know, users working from home are perhaps tempted or increasingly tempted to adopt some of the free tools we're all familiar with, some of the so the tools that you refer to there, Sean. Yeah. And because they're simple and what, what people know, it becomes increasingly incumbent on, on companies to provide more robust alternatives that users will be just as willing to use. That just like some of the public services that we might be used to, they're intuitive, easy to consume, but unlike these free alternatives, also provide things like you know, complete visibility, reporting, logging, the highest levels of security, tracking, you know, integration with other aspects of an organization's security apparatus is also important. And all of this with, you know, the sort of enterprise, um, enterprise great technology or functionality that you expect. So things like full failover and delivery assurance. So, you know, those are how you're going to mitigate against the risk of hybrid working or, or some of the ways you would mitigate against it, I would suggest. Yeah, completely agree. It's, it's not made me want to go in, back into the office less. I still can't wait to go back to the office. Indeed. Well, let's hope that feeling continues. So... Just to wrap things up, if our audience wants to find out more about Progress or CGI, where can we send them? Anyone interested in learning more about Progress and our move at Secure File Transfer Solutions should quite simply visit us at www.progress.com forward slash move it, M-O-V-E-I-T. And the same for CGI, cgi.com website. But also if you want something slightly more up to the minute. Uh, our Twitter handle for the UK is uh, CGI underscore UK news for all the breaking news around CGI. That was great. Thanks for joining us, both of you. Thanks for having us. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the FS Tech podcast.